0: Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father, and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. So I just also wanted to ask, ask this morning as well, who was on holiday in the holidays. Seeing some hands, some other people, we, we kept the wheel turning, huh? Eh? Someone has to do that as well. But just also to check, you know, many times January, it feels like somewhere December, we were running on a treadmill, and we got off from this treadmill, and as we were taking a break, you know, stretching a little bit, just gather, gathering our breath, someone came and just sped it up a little bit more, and also changed the incline. A little bit more. And then as you get onto it again, it's one of those whoop. Here we go. And it kind of feels like you're falling forward and you have to run, otherwise, you're going to fall flat in your face. So just to check who feels a little bit like that. Okay. Who has started to run and you are upright already? You already found the balance. Okay. Par. Eager beavers, as they call it, eh? setters. And who's still like kind of running and trying to not fall? Okay. And then anyone on pension, because there's also some of those. There's they they more the morning service type of people. You could see the morning service. Some of them were just like running on treadmills. They didn't know. But okay, that's not why we're uh, But now we know who's who. Let's dive into the text. This morning, we are continuing with our pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. Maria started this off two weeks ago, and we're working through 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And like Maria said so beautifully, the purpose of these letters, because many times you kind of get tripped up with this pastoral letter phrase, kind of thinking, okay, these might be the three letters that pastors read at home It's not something that we do as a congregation, but it's for us as a church to go through, to work through, to grow through, so that we can know what the church should be and what we should do and how that should look like. Amen. Like it said so beautifully in verse 5 that Maria did last week, that the aim of our charge, the goal of writing these letters, the purpose of the church, if you can call it that, the reason why we are writing these things is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Isn't that beautiful? And we also know that that isn't some nice feeling, love. The world might describe it as some kind of nice feeling that you have towards someone, but Scripture says that's action. There's action attached to loving well. Like the book of 1 John says, let us not only love in word, but in deed and in truth. Love does. Love does certain things. Amen. And we are called to love the people around us. And also in chapter 3, Verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, "Um, I hope to come to you soon, but if I delay, I'm writing these things to you so that you know how someone ought to behave in the household of God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Beautiful statement. I'm writing these things to you so that you know how someone might behave in the household of God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The purpose of the church as well. Not just to love well, but to uphold the truth. And a buttress, you know, kind of standing against the wall to keep it upright. And it kind of gives this idea that the wall of truth has been erected and our job is to stand against it as society continuously tries to push it down. Not stand for truth. And I don't know if you, like, kind of found it interesting, this book that revolves around love and loving one another well, the way it starts. You kind of maybe think maybe a practical garden, how to hug one another or to greet one another, you know, some some kind of thing like that. But no, it addresses false teaching. Interesting. To love one another well. Interesting. And just describing again our concept of love many times needs a little bit of work from Scripture so that we can understand what it means to love well. And one of the most loving things we can do is to speak truth into people's lives and also address and remove what is false. Amen? And we are going to continue along those lines to correct one of the big kind of false teachings of our day, not only of our day, but also in the biblical day. And this is this concept of the law. Like Maria also said, that Timothy is called to stay at Ephesus. We also need to understand these four verses that we're going to do tonight, verses 8 to 11. We're going to look at the law and the gospel. And we need to understand these four verses also in light of what Maria said. That Timothy said, Paul said to Timothy, stay at Ephesus. Charge certain peoples not to teach different doctrine. These promote speculations, endless genealogies, myths, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We want to pursue love. And certain people that's wondered for this have turned to vain discussions. That word vain can also mean fruitless. In other words, people are just speaking about Christian things, just speaking about biblical things, but there's no fruit. And also to look at ourselves, maybe that's true of us. There's a lot of speaking... And we are church and we speak, and we have accountability and we speak, and we are small group and we speak, but is there fruit? Is there something flowing out, something really happening, or bearing fruit of the gospel? They've wandered away, they've turned to vain discussions, fruitless discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, but not knowing the things about which they speak and make such confident assertions. They don't know how to use this law. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they say or about what they speak. But they're very confident. You know, there's a saying in English that says, you are more confident than you are correct. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I don't know if you've ever been there. Come on, let's be honest. Have you ever been more confident than correct? And you were kind of fired up about this thing that you believe or this thing that is true just to realize, "Ugh, I was wrong. Maybe a little bit easier. Do you know someone that has recently been more confident than correct? Maybe a little bit more easy. It's difficult for us to see when we are there, but more easy when we see something else being there. Amen? But those people were there. And in light of that, Paul addresses now the use of the law in light of the gospel. And before we dive in, I want to ask us the question What purpose does the law serve in the age of the gospel? What is the purpose of the law? How do we Christians, after Jesus came and have faith in Christ and are saved through the gospel, what purpose does the law have? And and you can kind of think now, yes, maybe you've thought about this a couple of times. Or you've been confronted with people saying a certain thing, or you've read a certain thing, and we're not sure what to do with this. And in this context, when we're speaking about law, like we'll see when we go through this as well, it speaks about ethical laws, Ten Commandments. Not food laws, not ceremonial laws. That's also there, but that's for the Jew. For the people set aside as a Jewish nation to distinguish them from the rest of the people. But this is ethical law, speaking about the standard that God has set for everybody, everywhere. What place does that hold? How are we to relate to that as Christians? How would, how, do we use it? Don't we use it? Do we study it? Don't we study it? How does it work? What purpose does it serve? It's very important that we answer this question because it will influence the way we live and also the gospel we proclaim. Amen. So with that question in mind, let's work through these four verses tonight. Let's read together from verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." Beautiful. There's obviously some hard descriptions in there. But nonetheless, <laughs> I love how it ends. And again, I like what Maria did. Let's read through it again slowly and just see, before we dive into the discussion, what can we learn? And I hope that is something that we grow in as a church as well. I'm not saying we're not doing that, but we can grow in that. It's through these sermons as we work verse for verse through these books to learn to see what the text says and to interpret it in that way. So that we'd not force our interpretation... On the text, say that the Bible means what we want it to mean, but allow the Bible to say what it actually means. Amen? So let's read through it again slowly, see what we can learn. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral. Sexual immorality means sex before marriage to sex with prostitutes, that whole list, everything in between and there, that it's in that list, just to explain, because we sometimes don't know what it means these days, it almost means nothing. Also, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, you know, that one kind of catches you off guard, list some serious sin and then, and okay, but <laughs> yok, and also you lie, it's like, okay also in there. Perjurers. This means someone that bears false witness. So this can be from as a as setting to gossiping about someone and not telling the truth about what actually happened. No? Kind of st- starkies by what do you call that in English? Adding tales. That eh? doesn't sound adding tales doesn't sound right. Exaggeration. Telling tales. Also some tales in there. But adding stories too literally in a court of law. Bearing false witness. The whole scope of it is, is in there. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And again, like I said, important to understand because this will not only influence the way we live, but what we proclaim. Paul says there, this is the gospel with which he's been entrusted, but then he entrusted it to whom? To Timothy. And in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he entrusts it to Timothy to entrust it to others who will entrust it to others. And so it goes on. And 2,000 years later, here we are entrusted with the same gospel to preach that gospel. It's important that we answer this because there's two opposite errors that we tend to fall into when it comes to the law. The one is lawlessness on the one side and the one is legalism on the other side. And then as I was... Thinking about these specific two things, I realized that many times when we hear these phrases, we tend to jump to the most extreme example and say, okay, we are not that. We are not that. Like, for example, when it comes to legalism, these people went so far. In chapter 4, you will read that they forbade marriage and certain foods. So foods, that's food law, but they somehow go beyond the law. And say, now there's so many extra things that we also should and should not do. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. There's these rules that we shouldn't break, but let's make rules to ensure that we don't break the first rules. It's like beyond the law. Very legalistic. And then lawlessness in the extreme side is that we can do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, to whomever we want to do it, because Jesus came and therefore we have forgiven through grace and we will, everybody will just go to heaven now. That's the most extreme side. But with all of these false doctrines and different doctrines, you kind of get this, uh, I was thinking about you know ordering at a specific restaurants, and you order like a, a curry-style dish. Then they ask you, if you don't choose the lemon and herb or the barbecue, then they say, mild, medium, or hot. And with these type of teachings, you get mild, medium, and hot as well, if I can kind of put it in that way. So don't just think about the hot side, the most extreme side, there's also a, a mild side to this. Like for example, when it comes to lawlessness, many times we tend to think, oh, you know, we are doing good and we're doing mostly what God says. But let's take one modern day example that's a touchy subject, but let's use it nonetheless. But we can live together and have sex before marriage. Let's let that one slide. I mean, God will forgive this grace and we're not in way going to get married. That's lawlessness. You're not breaking all of the laws. But you're definitely breaking some intentionally, willfully, and continually. That's lawlessness. And on the other side as well, we say, okay, we don't have to obey all the laws, but at least if I just do these things, then God will be pleased with me. So however little rules we do, the moment we use that to justify ourselves, it's legalism. Doesn't matter how small. Even if they're just two things. Even if I say, if I just go to church every week, then God will save me. That's legalism. Because we are trying to be saved by works. So it doesn't matter how small or big. It doesn't matter the amount of rules. The moment we want to do that for salvation, for justification, for forgiveness, it's legalism. The moment we take any law of God and say, no, we don't have to do that. That's lawlessness. Are you with me? And so we fall... To these sides. And with that in mind, let's go through this from the beginning and see what we can learn from it. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the first point is the law is good. Psalm 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul and making wise the simple. It's good, it's perfect, there's nothing wrong with the law. And it's important that we understand that because many times if we fail to see this, we fall into lawlessness. People say, hey, you know, God had this Abraham, or this um, Adam and Eve plan in the garden. That didn't go so well, so he tried again with that Noah guy, that didn't work so well. Then there was the patriarchs, that didn't work well. Then there was the law of Moses, and for a while that kind of seemed to work but also kind of didn't, so then Jesus came And that's been working for 2,000 years, so let's see. That's kind of the new one. But the other ones were broken. It didn't work. It didn't produce what it was supposed to produce. That's why the new plan's there. No, that's not true. The law is good. It didn't fail. It wasn't broken. It's not as if it didn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve. It's not that it isn't there for what it's supposed to be there. It, It works. It's good. It's perfect. It's perfect. So we don't fall into lawlessness. We don't just... Throw it away. It's good. But if. That's a conditional statement. Whenever we read the word if in scripture, it means that there's a condition attached to this. If. One uses it lawfully. So the second point is what? That what is good can be used in the wrong way. We can use what is lawful unlawfully. We can take what is good and use it in a bad way. But we know that. And that is the legalistic side. It's very important that we grasp this because churches throughout the ages tend to do this with kind of certain doctrines, difficult passages, certain practices. And because of some misuse of this, they tend to discard it or to apply it to the extreme. Let's take one example. For example, the gifts of the Spirit poured out on God's people to edify God's people to build up the body of Christ so that we can serve and minister to one another. And on the one hand, you have charismatic chaos. People saying, hey, God gave gifts to people. We can just use it and do with it whatever we want. And anything flies as long as we are convinced that is the Holy Spirit moving? Is the Holy Spirit working? Charismatic chaos. And then people react to that and say, hey, no, we don't want to enter into that chaos. We're rather going to just limit it altogether. No use. So the correct answer is not abuse, neither is it no use, it's the correct use. To see this and to apply this correctly. And that's why 1 Corinthians 14 was written to illustrate to us in a church setting how the gift should work, how the gift should function, how certain things should operate. Amen? And the same is true with the law. We can say no use, that's lawlessness, but we cannot apply to the extreme and in the wrong way. That's legalism. And in this context we will see that these people, these people that desire to be teachers of the law, they wanted to apply the law to the wrong group of people. We're going to see that now. They want to apply the law to the wrong group of people. And therefore, they assume that the purpose of the law is something that it is not. They assume that the law produces something that it doesn't. The wrong purpose for the wrong people. Let's read together, verse 9 and 10. And again, I'm trying to make this as simple as possible, that we can understand this as practically as possible, and I hope I'm doing that. Verse 9 and 10, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their father and mother, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Understand this, the law is not laid down for the just. It's not for the just, it's not for the righteous. But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. So we see there that the law is not for those who have faith in Jesus. The law is not for those who have been forgiven. The law is not for those who are living by faith. The law is not for the just. It's not for those following Christ. But it's for the unjust, it's for the unholy, it's for the disobedient, it's for the Lawless. And to kind of illustrate this point, we kind of get this, we also have rules and regulations in our town and nation, one of them, speed, you're only allowed to drive a certain speed, and whenever you're driving 60, the traffic cop doesn't pull you over and shout at you, hey, you must drive 60, because you'll be like, I am, I am driving 60. When you're walking with your wife there by the dark pond, assuming that you are male in the setting that I'm speaking about, and you're walking there, husband and wife together, strolling around at the dark pond, and someone comes in and says, hey, a biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. And you're like, we are. We are a man and a woman. We are doing it that way. Are you keeping yourself pure before marriage? And someone comes and says, hey, you must keep yourself pure. And you're like, I am. I am keeping myself pure before marriage. Do you see that? The law and the regulations is not for that. Walking around and you haven't stolen anything in the security guard, just you mustn't steal. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm not stealing. But it's for those who disobey. And at this point we must be tempted, and that's what happened to the, these teachers of the law, to be tempted to think that the law for the unjust is what made them just. And that's why they now no longer need it. We don't need to keep on telling people what they already know to do. And the assumption is there that the only thing that we need is to know what we should do and that automatically makes us want to do that. That's not true. We know that. And I think many times for people sincerely trying to follow God and for the average Christian, that is one of the most common mistakes or one of the most common things that we can't seem to work past. And that is the fact that just because we know what we should desire or know what we should do doesn't mean we want to do that. Are you with me? I mean, that it would be nice. We all know that we should read Scripture and we all know that we should pray and that that draws us near to God so that we can know the God who saves us. But just because we know that doesn't mean that every morning we just wake up with this insatiable desire for our Bibles and to pray. And man, if someone just doesn't stop me, and if I doesn't focus, I just, there I have my Bible in my hand again. Busy reading. Or at work, if I were kind of wander over there, I find myself praying again, and I just remind, we have to work now. No. It's not how it happens. It's not how it works. Are you with me? Just because we know the right thing to do doesn't mean that we actually want to do that now. And many times we also see this in the way that we kind of proclaim the gospel. Not only in the way that we live, and we kind of fail to jump past the fact that why didn't I do what I was supposed to do initially? Why didn't I do that by default? If you are speeding and driving past and someone says, hey, you're supposed to drive 60, and you're okay, I'm driving 60, but you never ask the question, okay, but why did I speed like that? It wasn't supposed to be that way initially, I wasn't supposed to, but I did speed, Why? We are failing to see what the law is trying to show us and many times we evangelize in the same way and it would kind of look like this you see someone at work or wherever and they're busy coughing and they look a little bit ill and you go to them and you say hey you're coughing you look a little bit ill and they say yo thanks man what should i do and you're like stop coughing look a little bit better It's like, oh, uh, oh, well, okay. Or you see someone that's nose is running, and you're like, hey, your nose is running. It's like, sure, thank you for telling me. What do you think I should do? He says, don't let it. Don't let it do that. No, nobody would answer the person like that. We would say what? I think you need to go to the doctor. I think you need to go to the doctor. I see a symptom here. I see a fruit here. Something else is wrong. And you knowing what is wrong is not going to bring about healing. You need to go to the doctor to get the right stuff so that healing can take place. Amen. And the same thing happens to us. We see and we are confronted with it and we just jump to either dead works or justification. Shucks, I see this thing in my life and the law convicts me of this thing that I'm not busy doing. So either I justify myself as to why I don't need to do that. That was old school. That's Old Testament stuff. We don't do that anymore. That's justification, that's lawlessness. We just immediately start doing it, but we don't actually want to do it. It's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And we're going to look at that now, and we're going to get to that main reason for the law just now, but just to also give us kind of a side note on why the law is there. One of the purposes of the law is also to restrain evil, it's to restrain the evil in the human heart, it's kind of to hold it back to some extent. It's not going to change the human heart, it's not going to sanctify, it's not going to save. But it, to some measure, exercise restraint, keeping us from doing all the bad things that we would have done if the law wasn't there. And to give us an example, obviously the law says that we shouldn't steal, we know that. So some people still steal. But I promise you this, if it wasn't the law that you cannot steal, more people would have stolen. Are you with me? There's a law that says we cannot murder People still murder. But I can promise you this. If there was no law, no judgment, no punishment for murdering, more people would be murdered. Are you with me? I kind of remember this story way back when about apologists going to a university. That's people defending the Christian faith. And as they were speaking about ethics and how the Bible teaches us to live, one student came forward very convinced. You know, one of those more, more, uh, what was it, More, more convinced, more, he, he wasn't correct. More confident than correct, there it is. He was more confident than he was correct. And he comes forward and he says, why do we need a book of rules to tell us why to live? Why do we need these ethical laws? Do you really think if we just remove laws altogether the people will just start plundering and murdering one another? And the guy just responded and he asked the student a question and he didn't think it through any answer too quickly. He said, do you lock your doors when you go to sleep at night? And the student said, yes, I do. And obviously the people laughed a little bit because his practice and his theory doesn't correlate with one another. He also thinks that people are capable of doing bad things and that we actually want to do those bad things. So in a sense, it restrains order. But here we get to the main point. Romans 3 verse 19 and Romans 7 verse 7. And if you want to go and read more about this, from Romans 2, verse 12 to to chapter 8, Paul explains the purpose of the law in light of the gospel. Goes through a number of illustrations to show why it's then, what the purpose of it is. But yet to kind of sum it up, Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The purpose of the law is to convict and to bring judgment. So that everybody might know, I am accountable before holy God. Judgment will come, and I am not innocent. Are you with me? That's the purpose of the law. It is to diagnose the problem. It is to diagnose the problem. It is there so that the humans can diagnose ourselves and see what is actually wrong with our heart. I see all of this fruit, but there is a bigger problem. And if nothing is done about this problem, we are going to be in an even bigger one. Amen. And then verse 20 also says, not on the board, but through works of the law no one will be justified, because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then it further explains that faith and justification has been manifested apart from the law. It's through the gospel in Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's not contrary to it, but bears witness to it. And that's where that verse comes up. For we all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God, but are now justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But verse 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. It diagnoses the heart. And we many times struggle and fail to look the diagnosis. We jump past that, we wanna move past that. Hey, shucks, I shouldn't cover it. So you try hard not to, but you don't ask yourself, why do I in the first place? Why do I in the first place? Why do I long for the stuff of the world? Why do I like the things that glitter so much? Why is that? And if we really dig down deep enough, we'll see that there's been value misplaced upon certain things. I'm not seeing as I should, therefore I'm desiring that way. Are you with me? But why am I coveting in the first place? So the purpose of the law is to convict and to hold us accountable. It cannot justify, it cannot sanctify. It can restrain the human heart to some extent, but it cannot transform it. It's the diagnosis, but it will not bring the cure. And that points us to something else. I'm gonna read this to us. Augustine wrote the following, it's not on the board. It says, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. I'm going to read that again. The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. The law is there so that we can realize, shucks. I do not make it and I do not have it within myself to make it. Help is needed. And if help does not come, death will be certain. And at this point we are tempted to do what? To fall into lawlessness again. Why? Because it's there to bring this conviction, this condemnation, this judgment upon us so that we can see we are in need of forgiveness. But if we now must turn to Christ and we are forgiven, then done. Then it's finished now. I mean, that would be to think that the purpose of the law and the gospel would be like a police officer standing down the street and you just stole a bike and you drove past him and he says, hey, you stole that bike. And the only thing you need to do is say sorry and then you can continue on that same bike. That's not how it works. I mean, because look at what the last two verses says, verses 10 and 11. Again, explains the lists of wrong living. And then it says, and whatever else, is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god with which i've been entrusted this type of living is in contrast to sound teaching and this sound teaching is in accordance with the gospel so in other words this type of living does not fit with someone that has faith in christ This list of things that were just named, someone that believes in Jesus doesn't live that way. Someone that has faith in Christ doesn't live that way. Someone that believes the gospel doesn't live this way. Why? Because through the gospel, when the Spirit is poured out in our hearts, it brings transformation and enables us to not only do what God intends for us to do, but to want to do what God intends for us to do. Are you with me? And again, this book makes it clear, like Maria also so beautifully said, that we cannot be sound in doctrine, but unsound in practice. We cannot believe the right things and live the wrong way. Are you with me? We cannot have faith in the gospel, yet live unholy. And again, that doesn't mean we don't sin at all, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But we don't live this way. While the law is the diagnosis, the gospel is the cure. He drives us to Christ to show us that we need grace. And that's why pride is one of the biggest obstacles to faith. Because it means that we have to accept the diagnosis. When the law comes and presses down on us, we need to acknowledge, I don't have what it takes. Don't mess up. I don't make it. And for most, that is difficult. And so we fall into lawlessness or dead religion. Like the Pharisees did. In Jesus' day. So, in other words, this is not being better so that we can be with God. This is because we are with God, we are better. Are you with me? It says, enter into the new and living way, speaking about Jesus, that through the gospel made a way so that we can be reconciled to God. But just because we know that doesn't mean it's just automatically so. Like it says, there's a lot of soap in the world, yet there's still also a lot of dirty people in the world because you need to apply the soap. Amen. So you need to enter by the new and living way. Jesus through the gospel makes a way for us to enter into a relationship with the Father. But we need to go to Him. We need to draw near. Not by doing works, but by faith in Christ. And because we are with God, that transforms us and shapes us into living the kind of lifestyle that God expects of us. Amen. It's not our obedience to God that allows us to be with God. No, it's us being with God that flows out in Obedience. If we want to do good works so that we can be forgiven, it will always lead to dead works. Whereas thankfulness will always lead to gospel living. Are you with me? To have it the other way around. We don't earn our forgiveness, but we are thankful because we are forgiven. And I want to ask us this: It's kind of like a a car and a trailer, and we tend to kind of swap the two around. The law doesn't go in the front and the gospel in the back. The gospel goes in front and the law goes in the back. We believe in the gospel, we have faith in Christ, but we will always pull this trailer of the law with us because that's the way we will live, not contrary to it, but not by it. It's not that that brings justification. It's not that that saves us. It's Christ that saves us, but that renewal allows us to walk in this new and living way. And I want to kind of ask us a question because you can see how Paul ends off there in verse 11. He says, the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. This beautiful gospel, this transforming life that happens and just flows through joy. That's why I asked us the question, why are we here tonight? And how do we feel about being here? The question is, how do you experience the Christian life? We have a quote on some of the lampposts in town that says, Jesus came to give life. Does it feel like you are truly living? Jesus came to give life. Does it feel like you're truly living? Or is the Christian life kind of this thing that's always there that you know you should do, but you rarely want to? Or is there joy in serving God? A thankfulness that's overflowing. Where are we? But just because we started the right way doesn't mean necessarily that we continue in the right way. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3 verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians who have have bewitched you, you who have begun by the Spirit, you now want to be perfected by works of the law. You began well, but you diverted to the law again. Let me only ask you this, that you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing through faith. And then again he asks them, the one who supplies the Spirit to you and works mightily among you, does he do that by works of the law or by hearing through faith? Where are we? Are we living according to the law or according to the gospel? Is there joy? Is there thankfulness flowing from our lives? Or is it this hard thing that we continuously just need to do? Where are we tonight? I'm going to end off us with this beautiful passage that illustrates this so beautifully. It's Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, explaining the new covenant. And it says... And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart that loves, a heart of compassion. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. That's gospel transformation. That is not living by the thing that diagnoses us, but that's going to the doctor and receiving the cure so that we can be transformed and actually follow God. And it's simple, but it's difficult because of pride. We need to acknowledge that we need the cure. It's as simple but as difficult. To acknowledge, Lord, that I I face the diagnosis head on. I see what the law is showing in my life. Now I'm turning to Christ so that salvation can come. And to kind of illustrate it, it kind of looked like this. Imagine tomorrow, alarm bell rings. Someone says, okay, it's judgment day. Judgment has arrived. And each person will be judged and condemned according to their works, according to their words, and not only that, but also to our hearts. The selfishness, the pride the way we viewed other people, the way we kept certain things to ourselves and didn't share with those around us, all of that will be buried in and you need to pay for that penalty. And if you don't have what you need to pay, then the death penalty is what you will receive. And as you get up that morning, you're walking and you're realizing that I I have nothing. I have nothing, I don't even know what the sentence will be, but I understand that I have nothing to bring nothing to pay, nothing to give. And as you stand in front of the line, they're beginning to list these things, the things you've done, the things you've said, the way you've treated other people, the way you've thought about other people, the fact that we do not love and honor God as we should. We do not give him the glory due his name and how we've kept to ourselves all the good things that God has given us and refused to share it with those around him. And as the sentence is about to be given, you kind of want to already stretch out your hands so that they can cuff you and take you to be electrocuted. And as the sentence comes, they said, hey, but they just want to tell you someone else came and paid the price. And you're like, but ooh. How? I I know no one else. I've done nothing for anybody else. How is this possible? Who would do this? And they point to a man walking and they say, there he is. That was the man. And you run to him and you fall down at his feet and you say, what can I do to show you my thankfulness? And he says, follow me. Follow me. That's the gospel. That's the transformation that we need to see. Allow the Lord to come and diagnose and show us the problem of the human heart, but then look to Christ, the one who paid on our behalf. And again, this is not some person. This is not someone else that just had... The thing to give. This is not someone else that also kind of afford. So this is the perfect, innocent, holy, blameless son of God. Almighty God himself. And not because he needs anything. Paul says this is the gospel of the blessed God. This is a happy God. This is a joyous God. This is all satisfying God. He doesn't need anything from us. But out of love yet he gave. And when we see that. And when we receive that. Transformation happens. Amen. And then every now and again, yes, we wander away. For some other reason, we drift from Christ. We fail to see the goodness of the gospel. And then we move into that place of the law again. But then the work is not again to live under the law. And some of us do that. Oh, now I've sinned. And now we try hard, hard, hard again to earn God's acceptance, to earn God's love. Man, I failed this time. And now I first, for a couple of months or a couple of weeks, have to pray, have to read. And don't do that sin again. Then I can go back to God. No, we're applying the law unlawfully again. When that happens, when that conviction comes, it's the Lord just saying, go back. Go back to the one who called you. Go back to the one you are following by faith. Don't delay, do it immediately because He's the one that enables you to do what is right. Amen. I'm not going to ask us to stand tonight. I going to leave these two points on the board. I'm going to ask us to turn to one another. And answer this question and pray through this question. The first one is, are you living according to the law or according to the gospel? Is there happiness and a joy in following God or is it this heavy thing? Every time you sin, you first for a couple of months have to prove to yourself and to God that you are kind of doing it on your own again. And then you kind of feel that God's happy again. Or is it by the gospel? Knowing it is that transforms, knowing who it is that supplies the Spirit, that enables us to follow. And secondly, what type of gospel are you preaching? Because you can fall into both categories again. Are you using the law unlawfully, telling people, hey stop, hey don't do that, hey live this way. Instead of using the law to say, hey we can see that there's a problem, but there's a different solution. There's one that forgives, sanctifies and saves using the law lawfully? Or are we not using the law at all? Because that grace is deceptive. There's still a place for the law that is good. It still needs to give the diagnosis. Otherwise we will lead people into lawlessness. So let's take a couple of minutes, discuss those two questions and pray to those two questions.